0: Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before my enemies, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our second reading is uh, the sermon passage today. And that's from Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 5. Revelation chapter 7, starting from verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Nebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, When the land opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were pews or thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, big thank
1: you to Randy for that reading and a big warm welcome to everyone here today. Great to see uh, lots of familiar faces. Some faces are also a little bit less familiar, so please come and say hello afterwards. Love to be able to get to know you as well. A big welcome to everyone tuning in on the live stream as well. Now, if you were on the live stream and you got the wide angle of church, you may have noticed that there are a lot of seats here you didn't actually come in for the event yesterday, Uh, so you'll see a lot of seats, there is actually a multitude, a countless multitude of seats going all the way to the, no no, that's not, Um, but uh, you'll notice that these seats are back because we're hoping in the near future to be able to gather all it back in together as one church, especially in the second service with our numbers, uh, we have the ability to do that. Uh, And so we're working through all the plans and the preparations for that soon. So, everyone tuning in, we hope to be able to see you live in person. And can you imagine that day and look forward to that day when we can be singing and praising God and listening to his word all together as one. Uh, A couple of quick announcements before we begin. Firstly, with the AGM, Uh, I would love for every member of our church uh, to set aside that morning... Uh, and to block it out and make a special effort to come along. I am super excited for that day. Uh, It's going to be a great day of hearing uh, how God is at work in the lives of our members, uh, how God's at work in our fellowship groups. Uh, There's going to be singing. There's going to be rejoicing and praying. Uh, There's going to be morning tea. I'm going to try and uh, make sure there's a coffee machine on site uh, to serve it all up as well, uh, to serve morning tea up. Uh, And there's going to be lunch provided, and as well as a little thing called an AGM. So... (laughs) Please make a special effort, if you're a member of our church, to block out that morning and to come along. Uh, Proxies are a a last-minute emergency uh, only, so please make that morning uh, along if you can. And uh, if you're not a member and you'd like to find out more, please come and speak with me. Uh, We've just held uh, some membership classes. I can give you a brief rundown, uh, so uh, if you'd like to know a bit more about that too. So... uh, Also, if if you've downloaded the bulletin and you're in the habit of uh, taking notes on the bulletin, just please note, I've miscalculated the spacings, so um, I'm going to be spending a lot more time on the content part and a little bit less time on the so what at the end, but hopefully it will all make sense uh, in the end too. For now, let me pray and ask God to bless us as we open his word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a good God who speaks. That you give us your words, recorded for us in your scriptures, and you've preserved them for us to this day. Uh, We thank you that we can be here and to hear these words. And so we ask for soft hearts to receive your word, that you'd help me by your spirit to speak clearly from this passage as I ought, that you would help all of us by your spirit receive this word and praise you and live for you rightly in obedience and joy. And ultimately that you'll do all of this for your glory and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hands up here, if you've heard of the name, I've got to check it again, if you've heard of the name Ronald Wayne. Anyone? No? You heard it because you were in the first service. That's cheating. Uh, I'd actually be surprised if you did. So about, over 40 years ago, Ronald met some guys at work and they had a great idea. Together they'd start up a business. The other two guys were the brains and ideas men and Ronald would help them with some of his contacts and his design work. They partnered together and in the agreement, Ronald would receive or would get 10% of the company. But less than two weeks into the new business venture, Ronald found he couldn't handle it. Business wasn't quite what he expected. His co-founders were not quite the people he thought he'd want to work with. In an interview decades later, he would say that it just wasn't a working environment he could see himself in for the rest of his life. And so he quit. Two weeks afterwards, he sold his share of the business for $800 and moved on. Things were not as he expected. His co-workers weren't quite the people he thought they would be, and it just wasn't the job he wanted to do. Now, sometimes church can be a bit like that. It's filled with people who aren't like us, not quite what we expect. So over the past 12 months, we've gotten used to churching in smaller groups of people, more familiar faces, and, you know, we have the option as well to just opt out for a week or two and just watch the live stream by ourselves. But imagine with me for a moment, if you could, and you have a look around at all these empty chairs, and imagine with me that day when they're all filled again. As we come back, as we gather back as one congregation, it will feel different to what we're used to, maybe what we're not expecting. I half expect that some people will drop out of church altogether. That, uh, that, that is the reality and the statistics that have come out of America and some of the stories I've heard from other minister friends in Australia, even here at this time. Some people during lockdown and distancing realized that they didn't need church and they just walked away. Church was filled with people they didn't like, they didn't expect, it just wasn't what they were hoping for. And so, like Ronald Wayne, they just walked away. Now, not many of you have heard of Ronald Wayne, and that's okay, I didn't know of him until fairly recently, but you probably do know his business partners, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Along with Ronald, they co-founded Apple the biggest corporation, one of the biggest corporations in the world today. Now remember, Ronald sold his 10% share of the company for $800. Today that 10% share is worth $60 billion. But he quit really early. Now if only Ronald knew where Apple would end up, if only he could see the big picture of what would happen at the end, I don't think he would have quit so soon. Now, what does Ronald's story have to do with our passage today? Well, today we're given a very big picture of what eternity looks like. It's a glorious picture, a massive picture, a picture to encourage God's people who are struggling through tribulation. A comfort to God's people that the justice they desire will one day happen. But it also serves as an exhortation. Remember that John was writing to a mixed bag of people, some who had lost their first love. Some who were compromising their faith. Some who looked alive on the outside but were dead on the inside. People just like us. You remember that seven-week sermon series we did a few months ago? We discovered that in each other people just like us. People in our church this very morning. And to these people we're given a big picture of the end goal. If only we knew where our lives would end up, would we quit so soon? Hold that thought as we unpack the details of our passage. So if you have your Bibles there, please keep them open to Revelation 7. And we begin our passage in a bit of an odd place time-wise. Have a look at Revelation chapter one, verse uh, 7, verse 1 with me. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, With the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power uh, to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So here, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This isn't saying that the earth is flat, it's more like thinking about it in terms of a map of the world. These angels are standing on each corner, it's another way of saying, that they have the whole world covered. So these angels have every corner of the world covered, and we see in verse 1 that they are holding back the four winds. No wind is able to blow on the earth or against the sea and knock over things. Right? They are holding back Category 5 cyclonic winds that would flatten and destroy everything in its path. But the timing of this feels a bit odd, especially if we uh, assume that the book of Revelation unfolds like a narrative, right? One event happening after the other. So what goes on in chapter 7 happens after the events of chapter 6. But you remember from last week, in chapter 6, we had the lamb opening the scroll with the seven seals. Now, just to be really clear, when we're talking about seals, we're not talking about the furry animals that live in the ocean. I heard of a story of another a pastor sharing of how he was 15 minutes into the sermon, and one of the congregation members went, Oh, It's not the sea lions. So seals, the seals, those those, uh, wax markers there that, that seal up the scroll. So Jesus, the lamb, is given this scroll with seven seals and one by one the lamb cracks open the seals and then we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride out bringing destruction on the world. Now especially by the time we hit seal number six, everything is going nuts. A great earthquake, sun becomes black, moon becomes like blood, Uh, stars of the sky are falling, mountains are being upheaved. But here in chapter 7, we've got four angels holding back the destruction. So what's going on? What's going on is that this is a flashback. Everything that's happening here in chapter 7 seems to have happened before the events of chapter 6, which is confusing, I know. But that's how the book of Revelation works. You see, it's not helpful to see the book of Revelation as one unfolding story. But it's actually more like a series of snapshots or different points of view on the same event. So if you watch sports, you'll be familiar with the action replay. You get the wide-angle shot of what's happened, and then you get this camera's view of the action, this camera's view of the action, and this camera's view of the action, and every time you get a different view... You see something slightly different. You see another thing. Or if you've been watching the news lately and you know that with everyone with mobile phones recording things, right, the news gives us all these different angles now on big events that happen. And every time we get a different angle, a different perspective on what's going on. The same thing's happening here. So coming back to our passage, John sees four angels holding back the four winds of destruction. Again, happening before the events of chapter 6. And then he sees another angel in verse 2 coming down with another seal. Think of this as a stamp. Okay, he comes down with the stamp of God in his hands and he tells the other four, hold back those winds of judgment and destruction until all of God's people have been sealed. So basically, God is doing a head count. He is making sure that all of his children are accounted for. No child will be left home alone. No child be left unaccounted. He knows his sheep by name, and his sheep will respond when he calls. And once they are sealed, once their number is filled, then the four angels will stop holding back that judgment. So John is looking on in this conversation, and which is happening between these angels, and then he hears something behind him. He hears voices, the voices of many crying out, a massive crowd. 144,000, 12,000 each from the tri- different tribes of Israel. So, who are these 144,000? Seeing as they are from the 12 tribes of Israel, does it mean that we are looking at some special group of Jews? Some have speculated looking at this that these are a special group of Jews who will be saved uh, at the end, just at the end, before the end times. Unlikely. For a few reasons. Number one, remember that 10 tribes of Israel were wiped out by Assyria in the the first exile. A lot of them were gone. Second, most Jews today cannot trace their ancestry. A lot of that information was lost during the thousands thousands of years, uh, last few thousands of years. Third, when you look at the tribes listed, it's actually a little bit strange. Joseph is there in verse 8. He's not actually a tribe of Israel. His two sons were Manasseh and Ephraim. But then you notice that Ephraim is missing from the list and Dan is also missing from the list. So if this is a group of special Israelites, it seems to be a very strange list. It doesn't seem to make sense. The cult of the Jehovah's Witnesses believed that it was 144,000 of their members in heaven until they had to revise that number. And they had to revise the interpretation of that number as their cult members grew beyond 144,000. Now they teach that it's a special class of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and most regular Jehovah's Witnesses get to be on earth, but there's 144,000 special of them uh, before the throne in heaven. Long story short, uh, no. It's not what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So who are the 144,000? You know, notice in verse 4 we get, introduce them but notice in verse 9 as john turns around and sees a vast multitude of people that no one can count i think the 144,000 and that vast countless multitude are the same thing here's why if you haven't picked up already numbers and quantities in the book of revelation are symbolic right the number 12 is symbolic of god's people representing god's people like 12 tribes of Israel. So you remember when Jesus picks 12 disciples? He didn't pick 12 disciples because he went to a small group seminar and then he was told that 12 is the maximum number that one person can mentor at once, right? which is why our Bible study groups in uh, SLE Church do not number more than 12. No, that's, that's not true. <laughs> Jesus picked 12 disciples because he was symbolically saying that his new disciples were the new people of God. 144,000, let's do some basic maths. Twelve times twelve times a thousand, a thousand being a symbolic number of magnitude, so 144,000 seems to represent the totality of God's people. Second, stronger reason I think is that you notice how verse four starts contrasted with verse nine. In verse four, John heard the number, and then in verse nine he looked, and behold, he saw the multitude. So he heard. And then he saw. And that's exactly the same thing that happens in Revelation chapter 5. Remember, he's standing there in the throne room. And he heard an angel say, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he turned and saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He heard, then he saw. The lion and the lamb in chapters 4 and 5 are the same. In chapter 5 are the same. The 144,000 and the endless multitude are the same. So John hears a large number of people. He turns around in verse 9 and he sees a multitude, a a number he cannot begin to count, a number that nobody can count. And this is what he reads. This is what we read. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Notice that John sees a diversity of people, every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. This is not, this is not universalism. Right? This is not everyone from all history, whether good or bad, religious or not, presenting themselves before God. These are God's people, called as his children, saved through the blood of Jesus. This diverse group of people are here because the gospel has gone out into the world. Christians have taken it to places beyond their shore. They have done the hard work of denying themselves, taking up their cross and crossing the street, crossing their borders, crossing the oceans to reach people who have yet to hear the gospel. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the 1700s, a newly ordained young minister stood up to argue for the value of overseas ministry missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. The young minister who was interrupted was named William Carey. Carey did not take that advice. And he eventually took the gospel to India to evangelize and translate the Bible into Hindi. In the 1800s, James Hudson Taylor did the same thing for China. He was, his efforts were often mocked and rebuked, but partly by his efforts, 200 years later, conservatively, Christians have num- are numbering in are close to 100 million in China today. Centuries before both of these men, another man by the name of William Tyndale began reading the Bible in Greek and realizing that the Roman, what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching on justification and the gospel was wrong. During a heated debate with a local theologian, the local theologian yelled at Tyndale, we would be better without God's law than with the Pope. The Pope is better than God's law. So Tyndale, Mike, droppingly replied, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spares my life, it would not be many years before I cause every boy who works on the farm plowing fields to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. He then gave his life, translating the Bible into English so that the common man could read it. Hindi, Chinese, English. These are languages that are represented around the throne now for all eternity. Men and women have given their lives to ensuring that all the nations in our world, the people, the tribes, and the languages will be represented around the throne of Jesus. They will be there, present, worshipping Jesus for all eternity because Christians today have given up their lives for this task. But there are so many more unreached. Maybe some of us here will need to give up our ambitions in life to chase this bigger one, to be a part of reaching the nations so that they can worship before him. Notice also in the middle of verse 9 where these people are. Notice that they are standing before the throne. At the end of last week's passage, Ben was telling us that there was one outstanding question at the end of chapter six: in the face of God's judgment, who can stand? And what was the answer? Come back next week. And people came up to me and said, "Ben, did he did you, Steve? You're always telling people come back next week, and that's what Ben did." Well, here's the answer: here are God's people standing before the Lamb, standing not in fear of judgment or fear of destruction standing with great joy. But how can they stand? How did they get there? Now, part of the answer comes in what they sing in verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb salvation belongs to our god that is the line from that is a line from psalm chapter 3 uh, psalm 3 not psalm chapter 3 psalm 3 verse 8 it's also the same line that jonah sings while he's in the belly of the fish in jonah chapter 9 verse two, uh, chapter 2 verse 9 god is a god who saves his people but can i ask saves them from what they cry out salvation belongs to our god but from what have they been saved The answer came last week at the end of chapter 6. They are saved from the Lamb's wrath and anger. They are saved from the Lamb's judgment. God is a holy God. Sometimes we object to the idea that God would be so angry against sin and sinners that he would pour out wrath on them. It makes God sound so mean and angry. But do we sometimes believe this? Because we have completely undervalued and denied the reality of God's holiness, his infinite purity, his incomparable uniqueness. Do we forget that our sin, every sin, is committed against an infinitely perfect God? See, Our biggest problem in life is not the exam that you have not studied for tomorrow morning. It's not finding a new home. It's not even that your health or your family are failing. Your biggest problem in life is that your sin causes God's wrath to be upon you. And the agent of that wrath, the one who enacts that wrath in the book of Revelation, is the Lamb. The Lamb is the one responsible for authorizing and pouring out God's wrath. But it's also the Lamb who steps in to rescue and save to secure and to seal up God's people. We sometimes think we sometimes treat God as though he's just this gentle wind, always there gently supporting us, and fail to realize that he can also be a cyclone, a hurricane, a typhoon. One of the most destructive forces of nature is a hurricane. This is the destruction, that photo there is the destruction of Cyclone Tracy in the 1970s. It hit Darwin on Christmas Day, and completely flattened the city. And that was only a Category 4. Cyclonic winds can reach excess of 200 kilometers per hour, flattening everything in its wake, causing massive destruction. But in the eye of the hurricane, there is quiet. Everything is calm and peaceful. You can see the sky. You can see the sun. There is peace and refuge in the eye of the hurricane. In the same way, there is no refuge from the wrath of Jesus. There is no refuge from the wrath of the Lamb, but there is refuge in Him. You cannot run from the destructive winds of His wrath, but if you place your trust in Him, you will find peace and refuge in Him. That is why people sing. That's why the people sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb now there's an odd moment that happens in verse 13 right one of the heavenly elders turns to john and asks hey john who are these people which is an odd question i mean how in the world is john supposed to answer that question right but whenever you see a question like this it's not for john's uh, benefit that the question is asked it's actually for the reader's benefit our attention is now being drawn into something very, to something very important. So John replies, as he can only reply, well, uh, you know, so you tell me. So one of the elders responds in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is massive. And we need to let this soak in. Let's, let's revel in these details for a moment. First, John is told where these people have come from in verse 14. They've come from, they, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, sometimes this has been understood to mean you know, the, the very end of time, just that those final years before the return of Jesus. But if the multitude is made up of everyone who's gone through that tribulation, then it seems to make more sense that. The Great Tribulation is a reference between the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to his second coming. If this is representing all of God's people through all of time, then we're talking about basically the last 2,000 years plus whatever comes next before the return of Jesus. And then John is told who these people are, verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. If you've got a white t-shirt and you get a bit of stain from lunch over it, here's a tip, don't wash it in blood. It's not going to happen. It's not going to come out as white. Right? But remember again, the colours here are symbolic. White is the colour of conquering, of victory, of purity. And the only way to get the robes white is to wash them in blood. And only the blood of the lamb washes people clean. Forgiving their sins, and giving them victory over the grave. They have their robes uh, washed by faith in Jesus, trusting his work on the cross for them. And because of this, you see the therefore there in verse 15, because of this, they can stand before God. They are before his throne, serving him day and night in his temple. Now you remember, remember what Jesus promised to the church in Philadelphia back in chapter 3. If they conquered, then they would become pillars in the temple of God. They would be in his presence forever as a crucial part of his building. But here in chapter 7, another temple image is being picked up. Believers are priests before God, serving him. And you remember, in the Old Testament, to be a priest was an immense privilege. Not, not anyone, not everyone could be there. Right? Only one tribe in Israel was dedicated to serving God. If you happened to be born in the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin, then you were outside of the temple. You just had to stand on the outside looking, at the, looking in, you, and even then you're just looking at wall, walls. Right? You had to be born in the tribe of Levi. But then you also had other, there are other particular standards as well. In order to get into the role of the priest, you had to meet other requirements. You had to be born in the right tribe, born in the tribe of Levi. You had to be born male. Sorry, ladies, you can't go in. You had to be born perfect, with no birth defects. But now in Christ, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter which family you've been born into. It doesn't matter what gender you are, or what you look like, because now it all depends on faith. Trusting Jesus and what he has done for you. You belong by faith. You have no... Friends, we have no business being in the presence of God. But he ushers you in. He welcomes you in. He dresses you in clean robes. And he shares his joy with you forever. Forever. In verse 16, God's people have all their needs met and are sheltered. No more hunger or thirst, no more sun will strike them or scorching heat will hit them. God will protect his people from harm forever and ever. And then in verse 17, we read that the lamb will be their shepherd. Which actually, when you think about it, doesn't actually quite make sense because a lamb is not a shepherd, a lamb is a sheep. Who needs a shepherd? But here is the wonderful biblical truth echoed by Jesus in John's Gospel. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the lamb who was slain for us, who stands because he has risen from the grave and because he stands, his people can stand. And just like that, in the image of Psalm 23 that was read out to us as well, the lamb shepherds his people and guides them to water, springs of living water. And as Jesus also said in John chapter 4, whoever drinks from these waters will never thirst Again, again, these are the waters that Jesus provides. It's another image of coming to trust and faith in him. And in the final line, we read that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. From the eyes of his people, they will be wiped away. There will be no more pain and no more suffering. Last night, I took my two beautiful daughters, Janessa, who is uh, seven, and Ellie, who is about to turn five. I brought them into the office and said, Girls, come sit down with me for, with daddy for a second. Let me ask you, you know sometimes when you're crying and when you're sad and when daddy wipes away your tears, does that make you feel better? And my beautiful girls with their big innocent brown eyes looked at me and said, not quite. (laughs) God wiping away our tears is personal to him. It's personal to him when when his children are hurt. He says in the prophet Zechariah that his people, uh, to touch his people is like touching his pupil. If I stood there and tried to touch you in the eye, you would react fairly violently to that. Touching his people is like that for God. It's personal to him. And he will make sure that all of the tears that his people have shed will be gone the tears of Job and his suffering, the tears of Ruth and Naomi as they lost their husbands, the tears that we shed in our own struggles when we see our family members struggling, the tears shed at funerals as people say goodbye to their loved ones as the casket gets lowered down into the the earth. God will wipe away our tears and he will make all things new And he will make everything better. And then once all of God's people are accounted for, when the head count is in, when the final sheep is found and herded back into the fold, then the seventh seal is opened. Now the seventh seal in some ways isn't necessary. The sixth seal, as we read earlier in chapter 6, has already unleashed the judgment day of God. But here in the book of Revelation, the seventh seal actually seems to prepare us for the seven trumpets to come. And remember, the seven trumpets are not the next chronological sequence of events. They are another angle on the judgment we have already seen. They intensify what we have already seen. The angel opens the seventh seal and the first response at this is silence. Ear-piercing silence for 30 minutes. An eerie silence which announces that judgment is about to begin. The angel grabs a golden censer and he fills it up with incense, which is symbolic for the prayers of the saints in chapter 5. And the incense is lit up and the smoke and the prayers rise up to God. It's a wonderful assurance for us that all of our prayers will be heard by our loving Heavenly Father. And then, once that incense is finished, it seems once our prayers are done, and all our prayers are done, and all our prayers are heard, and when the incense is finished up, then the judgment begins. The angel takes fire from the altar and puts it in the incense, and he throws the censer down onto the earth and smashes it. The silence is broken with peals of thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. And then we hit pause. We hit pause before we head on to the next scene. We're going to pause here as well, and it's not a bad place to pause. Because when we hit pause here, we get a a moment to catch our breath and a moment to stand back and survey this wonderful big picture. And then we've got a few questions to ask ourselves as well. So first, let me talk to you if you are here today and you're not a believer or if you're tuning into the live stream and you're not a believer. The picture we've been given today is of God holding back judgment until his people are numbered and accounted for. But you see, we don't know who that is, and we don't know how many there are. And you sitting there, if you're not a believer or if you're not sure, you might be counted as part of that. So I want to ask you, as you think about this, can you stand up before God on the day of judgment? And be real, no one can. There is no refuge from the wrath of Jesus for the sins that deserve his judgment, but there is refuge in him. If you want to be able to stand with that countless multitude experiencing joy, the joy of God forever, then you simply need to trust what Jesus has done for you. You need to recognize that you've rebelled against God Confess your sins and find forgiveness in Jesus and do that today, before it's too late. The seventh seal is about to be opened. And so while you have breath in you, please find out more about Jesus. And for all believers here today, those who say that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, those who say they want to follow Jesus, Well, we've seen a big picture of who will stand before Jesus on that final day and where they've come from and what they are like and what Jesus has done for them. And we've seen what this passage is about, but let's ask the question, why is this passage here? What is its purpose? Remember who John was writing to? The churches in Revelation 2 and 3, remember what they were like? John was writing to a church where people had started to lose their first love. Some were dabbling with false teaching and embracing untruths. Others had a reputation for being alive on the outside but were dead on the inside. Lukewarm Christians who were in trouble of being spat out. And still other Christians who were faithful but in need of encouragement to keep holding faithfully to Jesus. Remember that John was writing to those churches. As we went through that seven weeks of looking at them we realise and recognise that they represent all kinds of Christians through all church history in all churches today and churches even here, uh, Christians even here today. Christians who needed encouragement, Christians who were struggling and, yes, some Christians who needed a gentle or a firmer kick up the backside. Well, here is the big picture that we need to see. See, as much as this passage is about comforting us you know, for the future judgement that will come, the vengeance that God will exact on, his, uh, on those who persecute his people, as much as this is about giving us assurance of that day, assurance that our prayers are heard, I think the main purpose, and I realized this last night even as I was writing this, the main purpose of this passage is to give God's people the big picture to motivate them to keep conquering. The commands that constantly come up in chapters 2 and 3 to conquer, to conquer, to conquer, here is the end goal of your conquering. It's the big picture that will make the hard work of trusting Jesus today worth it. It's the big picture that will make persevering through suffering in this life and the persecution for following Jesus worth it. See, when you don't see that end goal and why it's worth conquering and persevering, then it can be all too easy to give up, to take our $800 and to just walk away. But if you know what the end looks like, then that should spur us and motivate us on towards the end. Florence Chadwick was a woman who loved to swim. At the age of six, she began competing in swimming. And at the age of at 10 years old, she came forth in the four-kilometer rough water night swim. This is open waters. You know, in the ocean at nighttime, four kilometres, there's no way I'm letting Jade and my 10-year-old son do that. Um, she was 13 when she came second in the US National Championships and was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. In 1952, Florence Chadwick set out to be the first woman to swim across the 33-kilometre Catalina Channel off the California coast. Now, the weather for the day of her, co- of her swim was cold. The water was icy cold and a fog had was had set in and was so thick that she could barely see her support boats following her on top of these issues the tides and the currents were against her and to make things easier sharks were also spotted in the area but by daybreak she decided to go forward An hour into the swim, and the fog did not lift, and it would remain the whole day. Her support boat followed along, shooting at sharks to keep them away. For 15 gruelling hours, she went on and on, but with the fog so heavy, she couldn't see the coastline and the current so strong, she had no idea where she was. 15 hours and 55 minutes into the 33-kilometre swim, and she asked her support crew to pull her out of the water. She didn't know it, but she was only 800 metres from the shore. If only she could have seen that. Two months later, she tried again. The fog was just as dense, but this time she kept going. She finished the swim in 13 hours and 47 minutes, breaking the old record by more than two hours and becoming the first woman to ever complete the swim. Friends, following Jesus and living for Jesus is hard. But Revelation 7 has given us a picture of that finish line. Keep persevering for Jesus until we reach the end. Keep conquering, and it will all be worth it. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks that you not only just command us to conquer, but you give us the rich promises of reward and you give us this beautiful picture of what it will be like. And so we pray that the immensity of this picture, the enormity of this picture will not be lost on us, but that it will resonate with our hearts and compel us and spur us on to that day. We ask, Father, that you'll help us to be a part of your mission, to keep reaching the unreached uh, voices and languages of this world and tribes and nations. Help us to be a part of that. Convict some of us here to give up our lives for that. Most of all, Father, help us encourage each other in these things as we've heard them, to keep trusting and persevering in them, that we might see you at the end, that we might rejoice with each other praising the, your son on the throne and seeing you face to face as you wipe away our tears. Father, help us to do this for your glory and our eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.